Hello, and welcome to the History of Haiti. Before we begin today, it has come to my attention that earlier this week, a massive 7.2 earthquake hit the southern peninsula of Haiti, causing immense destruction and taking over 1,400 lives. I've linked some nonprofit organizations currently focused on earthquake relief in the description of this episode, and I highly suggest you donate. So without further ado, let me begin the episode. In the last episode, we looked at the founding of the French colony of Saint-Domingue. We ended last time with the Spanish officially ceding Saint-Domingue to the French. Today, I want to look at Saint-Domingue's transition from a pirate base to one of the most profitable colonies of its day. Once the French had officially taken over Saint-Domingue, the planter population of the colony began to rapidly expand. These planters grew new crops introduced by the French, such as tobacco, cocoa, cotton, indigo, and the big one, sugar. In the early days of the colony, tobacco was the main crop grown by planters, who used both French indentured servants and African slaves to run their plantations. However, the former would gradually be replaced with the latter, as the African slave population in the colony would just grow and grow over the years. But tobacco production in Saint-Domingue gradually died out, and the colonists turned to a new crop such as cotton, cocoa, and indigo. Indigo in particular would become a staple of the Saint-Domingue economy, and it required relatively small amounts of capital to start an indigo plantation. And indigo plants produced a rich blue dye that was coveted back in Europe. And then there was sugar. Sugar was by far the most lucrative crop grown in Saint-Domingue. To quote podcaster and historian Mike Duncan, end quote, getting a sugar plantation off the ground was incredibly expensive. You needed a ton of specialized equipment to actually extract the sugar from the cane, and then if you wanted to refine it, you needed even more specialized equipment. So getting into sugar was a rich man's game to begin with, and even then it was going to put you into some serious debt before you harvested a single crop. Most of the financing came from French merchant houses on the Atlantic port cities like Knott's, La Rochelle, and Bordeaux. If your plantation turned out to be a success, then fortunes were there for the taking. But if for any reason you happened to face plant, these French merchant houses took it over. And ultimately, about half the sugar plantations in Saint-Domingue were owned by these merchant houses and run by salaried administrators. End quote. Sugar products such as molasses and rum were craved by Europeans, and large sugar plantations dominated the northern plains of the colony, and to a lesser extent, the western plains. The huge amounts of sugar flowing out of the colony's north turned the town of Cap Francis, aka Le Cap, once only a small village founded by Puritans exiled from France, to an incredibly busy port city. The one other crop I want to talk about was coffee. Coffee would arrive in Saint-Domingue much later, but once it did, it would become an incredibly lucrative crop. Coffee could be grown in mountainous regions of the south and west that sugar could not. As a result, lucrative coffee plantations dominated the south, and Saint-Domingue would eventually end up supplying half the world's coffee. 
All of these plantations, indigo, coffee, sugar, etc., required huge amounts of slaves to work them, and the slave population, as we will talk about next week, would come to vastly outnumber the free population. Slavery in Saint-Dumont was an economic necessity for any and all plantation owners. Even former slaves who had been themselves been freed uh, would often eventually come to own their own slaves. I will talk about the slaves more next episode, but for now it is important to remember that slavery is lurking under the table through all of this, and Saint-Dumont was a slave society, fully structured around the brutal institution. Now that we have some background on, well, all that, I want to talk about the groups of people that would become the master classes of Saint-Dumont. So, not the slaves, and all their grievances against each other that would come together to tear Saint-Dumont apart in 1791. To start at the very top of the colonial caste system, there were the colonial administrators. Now, colonial administration was headed up by two men, the governor-general and the intendant. The governor-general controlled the military in the colony, the military in the colony didn't have regular garrisoning soldiers. Instead, the military, if it could even be called that, consisted of the Malice, a whites-only home guard militia composed of conscripted white colonists serving as infantry or cavalry, and the Corps de Massachusetts, a police force recruited from the free people of color, a group that I will talk about in a second, focused on capturing runaway slaves. The intendant, on the other hand, managed the civilian affairs, like finances, taxes, and the budget. Both were appointed by the royal French government back in Versailles, and it was hoped by the Versailles government that each would serve as a check against the other. There were also plenty of other French administrators and bureaucrats that made up the colonial government of Saint-Dumont. One of the most important policies that the colonial government enforced was a policy called the Exclusive. The Exclusive was a French economic policy that made it it so that the French colonies, Saint-Dumont, Guadalupe, Martinique, etc., could only receive imports from France, and the only country they could export their goods to was France. And the colonists hated this policy because in their mind, it meant that they were being paid less for their sugar, coffee, and indigo than they believed it would be worth in a free market. And they were being charged more for their inputs than they believed they should be. The one group in particular that absolutely hated the uh, exclusive was the Grand Blancs, or in English, the Big Whites. The Big Whites were the wealthiest colonists in Saint-Dumont, a mix of plantation owners, large-scale merchants, and agents of the French bourgeoisie. The Big Whites dominated the North, and to a lesser extent, West provinces. But though rich, the Big Whites hated the exclusive. They wanted colonial autonomy, especially when it came to economics, and they craved home rule. These Big Whites, though, didn't want to make Saint-Dumont their home. Many plantation owners lived in France, letting salaries employees manage their estates. Even of the big whites who stayed in Saint-Dumont, many were blowing money on European luxury goods or constantly visiting France. 
many other big whites. I only wanted to make enough money to retire to France as rich men. The big whites owned a majority of the plantations in Saint-Dumont. But there were still some plantations not owned by the big whites, and instead owned by the next group I will talk about, the Gens du Color Libres, or in English, the Free People of Color. When white colonists first began arriving in Saint-Dumont, men heavily outnumbered women. This resulted in many white colonists freeing and marrying black women. Over time, this created a class of free men and women who had both white and African blood. Now, you will see them sometimes referred to as the mulattoes or the Franchi, but for simplicity, I will stick to calling them the free people of color, or just the coloreds. Unlike the big whites, the free coloreds didn't want to return to France or blow money on expensive European luxury goods. They stayed put in Saint-Dumont, and as a result, many prospered, building up multi-generational fortunes. Many came to own plantations, and of course, plenty of slaves to work their plantations. You see, though many of the whites in the colony would later claim that the slaves and the colors identified with each other, this was not true. The coloreds looked down on the slaves as an inferior race, and the slaves knew that the coloreds were just another class of masters. The one class on the island who actively hated the free coloreds more than any other group were the petit blancs, or in English, the small whites. The small whites were the shopkeepers accountants, stock workers, plantation managers, and overseers, and many other professions. They fulfilled almost any job on the colony that didn't require physical labor. And they hated the colors. The small whites, as a class, were often poor, uneducated immigrants looking to get rich on Saint-Dumont. So they tried to claim racial superiority over the colored. They claimed that the coloreds were an inferior race. The coloreds, in turn, hated the small whites, who they saw as uneducated swine, barely better than the slaves, and they casually referred to them as white Negroes. The royal administration on Saint-Dumont began to get concerned about the Big Whites' movement for self-government. With few troops to back them up, the administration began attempting to exploit the tension between the Big and Small Whites as a means of keeping the Big White ambitions in check. So those are the classes of people who controlled Saint-Dumont. These are the groups whose tensions against each other would eventually trigger the 1791 Haitian Revolution. But there is one group that I've purposely chosen not to mention. A class that was several times more numerous than all the other classes combined. The Slaves. A group which I will spend the next episode talking about. For now... I want to close today with a look at the geography of Saint-Dumont and where the big whites, the free coloreds, and the small whites were all based in the colony. In the north of Saint-Dumont, there was, well, the North Province. The North Province 
stretched over a vast fertile plain and was where most of the sugar plantations on Saint-Dumont were located. The colony's main city of La Cap was a port in the North Province. The big and small whites were the main groups inhabiting the North Province, and there were few free coloreds. The North Plains bordered a mountain range located in the North Province, but this mountain range extended past the Letros River, aka the border between the North and West Provinces. In the north of the West Province, there was the Northern Peninsula, a mostly mountainous area. Then further south, there were plains stretching from the port city of Gonaives across the Aroutabone River to the city of Saint-Marc. These plains were also mostly used for sugar plantations. Further south of Saint-Marc was the city of Port-au-Prince, the future capital of Saint-Dumont. Port-au-Prince was a city dominated by small whites, as many other large cities in the colony war. East of Port-au-Prince was the cul-de-sac, another one of those plains where sugar was grown. The West Province continues down south all the way to the Atlantic Coast city where the port of Jacmel was based. West of Jacmel was the South Province, which stretched over the South Peninsula. The south of the island was mountainous, and instead of sugar, the main crop grown here was coffee. These coffee plantations were mainly owned by free collards. And the, co the collards in the south were more separated from the rest of Saint-Dumont, as they carried on a large contraband trade with the foreign colonies. The capital of the South Province, Lacaille, was actually located on the Caribbean coast of the South Province rather than the Atlantic coast. So to recap this episode, Saint-Dumont's sugar and coffee plantations produced in Met and Swell. It had four main master classes, the royal administrators, the big whites, the free colors, and the small whites, all profiting from this well whether directly or indirectly. It had three main provinces, the white-controlled sugar-rich north, the west that had both large mountain where coffee grew, flat plains that produced sugars, and thriving ports, and the free color-dominated coffee-rich south. All of this turned Saint-Dumont into an incredibly rich colony, producing huge amounts of valuable coffee, sugar, indigo, and cotton. Saint-Dumont was so rich that the saying, rich as a Creole, Creole being the French word for someone born in the Americas, became popular back in France. But the one group who made all these immense profits possible, who vastly outnumbered all the other groups combined, was the slaves. So next episode, I want to look at the slaves, where they were from, their tensions with their masters, all the way they as they tried to individually fight back against the enslavers before diving into the McCandle conspiracy. Thank you for listening. Uh -huh.